Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Connecting the dots on climate change includes understanding what looks like a slow and steady rise in global temperatures, in fact has a profound effect on regional variability in weather – increasing risks of increasingly extreme weather conditions. In Australia, we understand extreme weather, from bushfires to floods, droughts and fires, big weather is a big part of our life on a magnificent continent. However, extremes are increasing. The intensity and magnitude are growing with black summer in 2019-2020, a textbook case of how climate change alters our Australian life and landscape. Heat is at the centre of climate change. It's both the core problem, that slowly rising temperature, and a major threat. Heat waves are already the natural disaster that has the highest mortality in Australia, a mortality that's predicted to rise over coming decades. One of the most confronting elements of climate science is the temperature limit that's faced biological life. How close are we to those limits? How much do we understand those limits? And can we both mitigate and adapt quickly enough to ensure our future? My name's Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a physician and cardiologist, and I'm welcoming you today to the Policy Forum pod, which is produced by policyforum.net, part of the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school here in ANU. Listeners, you can check out our degree program and our short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au study. And I'm delighted to be in the virtual studio again with my co-host, Sharon Bessel. Hi, Anna Greta. It's great to be here and to be talking about this particular issue or these sets of issues as we lead into COP26. It is. It's a very important time, I think, for us to be really reflecting on the nature of climate change and climate science. And of course, we're following on in this episode with the reflections from our discussion just recently with Robert Glasser, an episode which I think has been quite well received out there. Yeah, that was a fantastic episode. We've had a lot of of really great feedback on it. And for those of our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to to download the pod with Robert, it was a really great introduction into some of the issues around COP, uh, the process itself, and what we need to know to be able to make sense of the discussions and the reporting that will come out of that meeting in, in the coming weeks. For those of you who who don't know me, I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School. And over the next few weeks, Anna Greta, we're going to be having a number of conversations around issues that will be relevant for COP. 
Absolutely. It's a tremendously important time for us to be discussing these issues. And so, Sharon, today we have two people joining us to discuss heat in the context of our changing climate. Would you like to introduce our guests? I would love to. We have two outstanding guests to talk through these issues. And I should just put the warning on this that we are, of course, recording remotely yet again as we are in lockdown here in Canberra. Anna Greta and I both have brand new microphones, which we hope is going to help with the quality, um, but we do apologise. But it doesn't necessarily <laughs> block, and it, it doesn't block the chickens and the dogs and the animals and the children that will come through the, the soundscape from time to time. So listeners, we do beg your indulgence at this, this interesting time that we all find ourselves We've in. We've had a fabulous range of sound effects over the past couple of weeks, which just we adds have. to the excitement of every episode, but we do appreciate people's patience. So today we have with us Simon Quilty. Simon is a general practitioner who trained as an engineer before studying medicine. He has lived and worked in the Northern Territory for over 20 years and he has a great deal of experience in rural and remote medicine in Australia. Simon is currently based in Alice Springs and he works as a general physician at the Alice Springs Hospital. He's also a visiting fellow at the Research School of Population Health here at the Australian National University, where his research examines the relationship between environmental heat and well-being with a focus on the Northern Territory. And his work takes a cultural lens to examine opportunities to adapt to the warming that is now underway in tropical north of Australia. Simon, it's great to have you with us. Welcome. Thanks, Sharon. Good to be here. And we also have with us Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. Sarah is a climate scientist with a particular interest in extreme events. She's an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and Chief Investigator on the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes. She is currently based in the School of Science at UNSW Canberra. She researches on issues around heat waves, focusing particularly on comprehensive methods of attributing heat waves to climate change. She's also assessing how we might attribute the health impacts of heat waves to climate change. And her research interests cover issues around marine heat waves and their linkages to atmospheric heat waves and past and future changes of these types of events. Sarah, fantastic to have you here today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Sarah, perhaps we could start with you. And can I ask you to, to begin by painting the picture of how the global increase in temperature of just over one degree has affected temperatures around Australia? Yeah, so it's not looking very good, can I just say, as much as it pains me to say that. Globally speaking, we've only seen an increase of roughly one degree Celsius, just a little bit over since the Industrial Revolution. Um, and in Australia, average temperatures increased by just under one and a half degrees Celsius since the beginning of the um, 20th century. So that doesn't sound like a lot, really. You know, if today was a degree warmer, for example, here in Canberra, I'd be much appreciated, or much appreciative. But it means a lot for extremes and temperature extremes, particularly. So we only need a small change in those average conditions to see a really large increase in both the frequency and intensity of extreme temperatures, such as heat waves or extremely hot days. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So everywhere in Australia has seen an increase in the frequency of heat waves. And most places, particularly in southern Australia, have also seen an increase in the uh, intensity of these heat waves as well. So heat waves are generally uh, extreme heat events that last for at least three days in a row. 
Obviously, we also get temperature extremes that, you know, are just a day or two, and we're also seeing massive changes in them too. So, for example, in Penrith, uh, a suburb in greater western Sydney, during the 2019-2020 summer, they actually recorded a temperature of 48.9 degrees Celsius. And there's lots of research coming out now saying that days like 50 degrees Celsius, which are basically unheard of in Australian capital cities, uh, will no longer be the case. Um, And it's looking like that could happen, you know, by halfway through this century as well. So, you know, that, that's uh, in conjunction with, you know, a larger global increase in average temperature, so, you know, maybe reaching two or three degrees Celsius, will make us see, you know, much, much larger increases in the frequency and severity of temperature extremes uh, compared to what we've, we've seen recently. Simon, that sounds terrifying when we just think about the, the increase of, um, of the temperature to towards 50 degrees. But for, for people, for plants, for animals, biological life on this planet. Temperature is one factor in heat and humidity is the other. What do we know about the health impacts of of heat in particular? The interesting thing when you start to explore environmental heat is that it's really not, there's there's not a great deal of consensus on how it harms people. Uh, We understand from an epidemiological point of view that that heat is attributable to mortality and morbidity rates, but we don't really know the specifics. When you contrast that to things like cancer treatment and, for instance, uh, progress in things like CAR T cell therapy, which is extraordinary uh, understanding of human physiology, we are pretty lacklustre in our understanding of how heat affects human bodies. And so I think we've got a long way to go. I think that there's an evolving great deal of interest in this sphere, but I also think that what it reflects for me personally, particularly where I work where I work and with whom I work, which is mainly Aboriginal people, uh, is that as a society, as a Western society, we are very uh, non-ecological. We think we're non-ecological, but we can't be non-ecological. We are a part of this planet. Uh, and even when you live in really hot places like Alice Springs or Darwin, you can't escape living in those really hot environments. And so, you know, there, there's some things that we know clearly that, for instance, that if you, if your body goes above 41 degrees Celsius, uh, your proteins start to denature and start to cook. And we call that heat stroke. Uh, however, how heat from a shorter and longer-term perspective actually interacts and potentially damages the body is not well understood. Sarah, I wondered if you might like to comment on some of that. I know you've done some work as well looking at the population level on the health impacts of, of heat. Yeah, so this that sort of work relies basically on what we know from an epidemiological perspective. So depending where you are in the world, and we're starting to scratch the surface here in Australia, but it's this research is certainly more advanced in other parts worldwide. That depending on where you live, you know, you're acclimatised to a certain temperature range. So, for example, Australians, generally speaking, are acclimatised to warmer temperatures than, say, um, northern Europe or England. And we can kind of look at that relationship between extreme temperature or, you know, extremes that might occur and how that might relate to the mortality or morbidity rate of those particular regions. And that can then tell us, you know, we can then look, well, if these extreme heat events are increasing, then the relative effect on human mortality and mobility will also be affected too and there's therefore a climate change signal in those relative uh, death rates or things like hospital emissions um, 
or incidences of certain diseases as well. So it's certainly, I guess, a new field. As Simon said, you know, we do know some things about extreme heat and how it affects human health, but there's still a lot that we don't know. And then that also kind of impacts what we can actually do in terms of how you know, it changes in extreme heat will changes in the, change in these impacts as well. But I should add there, like there's a real need here for both people like myself and, and Simon and our respective disciplines to work together. It's not easy because we do tend to speak different languages, but this is what we need to do moving forward, that if we really want to understand how population health and heat uh, interact and affect one another or, you know, really namely how heat affects human health, it's something that we need to, to do and work together and start speaking the same language. Because that's really, you know, how we're really going to understand how climate change may increase our human uh, morbidity and mortality. Sarah, we know that the global temperature has risen by just over one degree on average from from 150 years ago as a baseline. There is regional heat variation, and I wonder if you might like to explain to us what regional heat variation might mean in the Australian context. Are we seeing a uniform increase in temperature across our continent? Yeah, sure. So how changes in the weather play out, whether it's extreme temperature or temperature in general or another type of climate variable, such as rainfall or wind or what have you, it's really dependent on the local climate. So for example, things like the tropics, a temperate climate, an alpine climate, those sorts of things that really helps govern how changes in the overall global climate will transpire at a local scale. So these changes aren't uniform over Australia, just like they're not uniform over other regions of the, of the globe. Generally speaking, you know, the tropics, based on their very definition, have a really narrow temperature range. They don't vary much in the year. You know, they might range, for example, between 25 and 35 degrees Celsius if you're lucky. So that's a very narrow temperature range. And what is an extreme in the, in the tropics um, will be different to, say, an extreme in somewhere like um, Melbourne or Tasmania. So places, more more temperate climates, which are places like Melbourne and Tassie and Sydney and Canberra as well, they do have a larger uh, um, annual variation. And so they tend to actually hit extremes like 40, 45 degrees Celsius, which is not seen in the tropics because of that, you know, smaller temperature range and also because, you know, the tropics are also more humid and a lot of that extra energy goes into um, keeping the air humid and the moisture in the air. So that does really govern, you know, how the changes will expire in the future. And it's interesting that when we talk about exceedances of things like extreme heat, the tropics, so places like Darwin, Brisbane, basically anywhere north of 23.5 degrees south, they will see quite a large increase in the frequency of heat waves because it doesn't take much to exceed that relative extreme threshold. You know, if the relative extreme is, say, 33 degrees Celsius and all of a sudden you warm your climate by a couple of degrees, then you're going to see that, you know, that relative frequency be a lot higher than in a temperate climate where they have a much larger distribution over the entire course of the year. So that's something to keep in mind uh, when we're talking about how, you know, changes in average climate then transpire into changes in more specific extreme events. And Simon, you're you're currently living in Alice Springs, but you've lived and worked in Catherine for, for many years in the tropical north of the Northern Territory. Can you tell us a little about your experiences with changing temperatures over the past few decades and particularly what you've seen in terms of the health impacts of those changes? Look, I mean, I guess working uh, and living in a predominantly Indigenous community uh, everything that I've seen has been uh, flavoured by this um, incredible, uh, incredibly different view of of how to perceive and interpret the world. But um, climate change has been recognised 
in places like Catherine by Indigenous people, regardless or not even informed by meteorologists or science or contemporary conversations around climate change. And for instance, uh, around these parts, it was thought that the world was getting hotter because the sun was coming uh, lower to the ground. And so what has been, so whilst it's been clear to Indigenous people that the environment's warming up and it's, and they've witnessed this and understood it through things like signalling of, of, of uh, systems and ecosystems, uh, for instance, flowering plants and the timing of, of different ecological events. The last decade, from my perspective, I've been up in the top top of the Northern Territory for about 20 years on and off. Uh, the last 10 years, and particularly the last three or four years, have been incredibly hot. And so Catherine is a good example of that. In 2019-20, the summer of 2019-20, was the hottest ever recorded. And I think December average was four degrees above the long-term average. There were 56 days above 40 degrees Celsius, uh, which was almost a thousand percent increase over the long term average. From a personal perspective, it was, it was existentially terrifying to realize that the extreme new heat that had arrived so much earlier than, than people had thought it would was now here to stay. And at the moment, we're in uh, La Nina year and we're, we're all kind of sighing relief. Uh, but everybody up here is aware that that we have very substantial problem on our hands in the next five to ten years. And so I think, Simon, that, that resonates with so many of us living in, in Australia, that the summer of 2019-20, the black summer for those of us on the East Coast, a very hot summer where you were in the Northern Territory, really began to get our attention, I think, about what the future might look like. And that takes us to the future predictions that we see in our climate science. The recent sixth assessment report from the IPCC demonstrates increasing confidence about climate science and climate modelling. Sarah, what sort of predictions can we take from that report for the climate of our future? Yeah, it's really interesting. So with the, with the most recent IPCC report, you're right, the amount of confidence that they've put in in terms of changes in extremes, or not, not put in but what the science actually shows us now, has actually increased quite dramatically from previous iterations. So I would say that's probably where the most research of the last number of years has gone into climate science is this change in extremes. Previous IPCC reports were much more conservative about what we know and what we didn't know about changes in extremes, but that has certainly shifted uh, in the last eight or so years. And for the most part, the more the climate warms by in, in terms of a global climate, the worse extremes will be. Now, the relative worseness, I guess, depends on the type extreme that you're looking at. So, you know, for example, the changes in extreme rain events scale differently to um, global average temperature compared to extreme temperature. But, you know, I, I would say that the, the, the largest changes or the most, I guess, sensitive changes to global average temperature are changes in extreme heat. And that's really quite concerning because this is, you know, just like Simon was mentioning, these are the sorts of extremes that we're all of a sudden experiencing a lot more of. They're only going to get worse and they have massive implications, obviously, for our human health, but also for many other different systems as well. And the IPCC have really come out with quite strong statements around that, not only around those 
you know, changes and impacts, but what we actually need to do to mitigate those changes. And it's a really, you know, it's really going to be hard to do that. And it is, you know, in many ways, probably off the table now. So I think that might be a place for us to take a very short break to contemplate the future uh, of our planet. And we'll be back in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So... Welcome back. We're here with Simon Quilty and Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick talking about heat and the health impacts of climate change. Before the break, we looked into the future of temperatures around the world and in Australia. It is a confronting view with the increasing frequency of extreme heat and temperatures that we've had little experience in handling. The politics of international climate negotiations, I think, can seem stark in contrast with negotiations that involve a compromise in the temperature rise expected over the next century between a best-case scenario of 1.5 degrees and then scenarios that range above 3 degrees. What sorts of temperatures will we be seeing in Australia, even at the best-case scenario? Sarah, I wonder if you could give us a taste of the sorts of temperatures we might be experiencing in, in either case over the next few decades. Yeah, definitely. So I, would just, I just want to kind of say there that my viewpoint, even as a you know person in climate science, I've been studying and working in climate science since I left high school almost 20 years ago. My view on what is possible or my understanding of what is possible in Australia has changed dramatically over the last couple of years simply because of events that have ex- it transpired worldwide. So I actually had a friend over on the day that Perth reached 48.9 degrees Celsius. I was living in Western Sydney at the time and they asked me when would Sydney hit 50 degrees Celsius. And at the time I thought, oh, there's no way we're going to reach, you know, the high 40s today. It'll be another few decades or so. And I actually have to, you know, I messaged him back that night and said, I've got to, you know, <laughs> give you a different answer because we're only a degree or so off it now. And that was in a in a summer where we didn't have El Nino, which is usually a driver of really hot weather in, in most of Australia. That wasn't in its active phase. So if you get, you know, the in the near term, the perfect storm of climate change, climate variability and drought, those temperatures are a very, very, very possible. And I'm actually quite surprised that we didn't actually reach them during our black summer fire. And that's also cemented by what happened uh, in Canada and the town of Lytton in June this year. That town, Lytton, sits at the same latitude as London and it reached almost 50 degrees Celsius. And that that even uh, you know shocked me. It didn't surprise me, but it was a massive shock to think a, a city at such high latitude reaching such a high temperature when we've only warmed by one degree Celsius uh, globally. It was a huge, I wouldn't say it's a wake-up call, but it's a huge reality check of what we can, you know, reach in Australia in the in the short term. So 
certainly temperatures of around 50 degrees Celsius are not off the table in the next couple of decades. Currently, it does take that perfect storm of climate variability, climate change and local scale processes for that to transpire. But moving into the future, it will be climate change that will be the dominant factor. And the more we warm by, the more likely those extreme temperatures will be and the more often that they'll occur. So if we warm by five degrees Celsius, for example, you can expect that summers in Sydney, summers in your capital city, will it be experiencing days of 50 degrees Celsius reasonably regularly? The chance of that is less at, say, two degrees warming, but it's still, it's definitely not impossible. I'd still reckon it's going to happen at two degrees Celsius, just not as often, obviously, at at a warming of five degrees Celsius. Simon, we've talked a little bit about the the health impacts of of extreme heat, but what are the the limits of biological survivability when we start to talk about 50-degree days as being relatively regularly? One of the things about uh, heat and human research is that we we have all these confounders of housing and, um, and infrastructure and technology. Uh, so the early research on heat and biology started with dairy cows. When you work in the Northern Territory, you can see how important it is for people to have uh, infrastructure that allows them to shelter from these really extreme climates. And I guess what I am seeing up here is that if nothing changes around Indigenous housing and extreme poverty, then I feel like, I feel like those communities are certainly coming to the point. In fact, they have come past the point of these extreme temperatures and there's definitely people dying in the Northern Territory from heat exposure because they simply can't shield from the heat. So, for instance, we've got some research coming out that demonstrates the extreme energy poverty of remote uh, living Indigenous people. And when you consider that the housing in which they reside is incredibly substandard, it would shock an audience from Canberra to see the standards of some of these houses that are not insulated, often built from tin. Uh, so when you get a 50-degree day, so it hasn't ever reached 50 degrees in Tannock Creek, for instance, but it got to 49.9 in 2019, um, the, the inside of a house is poorly uh, designed and constructed could presumably go up to well above 50 degrees Celsius, just the same as leaving a child in a car. And so when people don't have the capacity to pay for air conditioning of these poorly designed spaces, then we're, we're very close to a limit of survivability, keeping in mind that we know that proteins start to denature about 40 degrees Celsius and that heat stroke hits, hits at 41 degrees Celsius. And knowing, for instance, that Alice Springs experienced an unprecedented 40 days above 40 degrees Celsius in a row, a few years ago, it's really now foreseeable that we are going to have summers in the next decade that will potentially uh, lead to a very significant public health crisis. Right, and I would have to, you know, agree with that. It's heat weight. Heat seems to be an insidious killer that no one can, you know, they don't see. It doesn't happen straight away, so it's not really obvious when it might occur. And I do think people don't realise that, you know, as mentioned in the opening, heat waves are the most deadliest natural disaster here in Australia. They kill more people than all other natural disasters combined. 
Um, but a lot of people don't realise that because it simply doesn't happen straight away. It happens over the next couple of days after the exposure to the extreme heat. Um, you know, for example, the the Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria in 2009 killed something like 180 people, but the heatwave immediately before the fires killed almost 380 people. So there's certainly, you know, you know, strong evidence and strong indicators from previous events that we are on this cusp of this um, health crisis due to extreme heat. I think when I'm, I, I hear you, Simon, talk about the, the experiences that you've had in the Northern Territory and, and Sarah, those points that, that you make, it, it strikes me so powerfully that while the impacts of extreme heat from climate change will impact on all of us, there are such fundamentally important equity issues here and it will, will be those who are most marginalised, most vulnerable, who are going to be hit hardest and likely hit first. But eventually this will impact on all of us. Anna Greta had, had said earlier that the global negotiations are currently looking at whether we, we end up with a 1.5 degree temperature increase or a 3 degree increase. And we've talked about what that means for temperature variability. Simon, if the the global compromise is to accept three degrees or perhaps even higher than that, what do you think this is going to mean for Central and Northern Australia where you do your work? Given how incapable federal and state governments have been to address the extreme inequity in housing uh, and the multidimensional poverty that Aboriginal people live in, I can't see that we are going to be able to support communities through this as it currently stands. We need to have a dramatic change in our expectations of governance around urgent change if uh, Indigenous communities are going to survive. And look, it's the, us, us non-Indigenous people who live in Australia are a bit lost. We don't have a connection to country like a lot of the people that I know, and I I know that most of the Indigenous people I know are deeply connected and highly uh, resistant to even considering uh, having to move elsewhere because identity is fully uh, fully contained within the context of the land on which your ancestors belonged. I have been hearing conversations from elders that they're considering what their options are when it comes time to move. And so I think we really need to have a lot more integrity and transparency around conversations. This is a very frightening reality. We don't need to be jumping into or we all need to abandon the country in which we stand yet. Uh, we need to be taking it iteratively. We need to be having very clear strategic plans for each five to ten year period to figure out how to negotiate. And if we have another summer like the one of 2920 and presumably we're going to have worse in the next five years, uh, this is we are at crisis point already. You said before, Sharon, that um, vulnerable, marginalised populations were at great risk. I would say that they're no longer at great risk; that they are actually experiencing uh, exactly what it is that over the last two decades climate scientists have been warning us about. It is, it's a so the, this issue of equity, I think, is is so starkly demonstrated through the Northern Territory experience, and it is absolutely crucial we hear the narratives and stories emerging from our Indigenous populations in the centre of Australia, 
and also from our marginalised communities in our cities around Australia where the same issues around equity and the, the increase in, in vulnerability from the living environment uh, will, will definitely translate to changes uh, in health outcomes. Intergenerational equity is the other central theme that emerges when we're talking about climate change because of the rate of change. Are we doing enough to prepare for our future? And what should we be doing differently? Sarah, would you like to start with that one? Uh, yeah, so as a mother of two young children, soon to be three, I'd say point blankly, no, we are not doing enough. We're not doing enough to protect them from the future. So my children, they'll be 80 in 2100 or thereabouts, and they will experience whether or not we reach three degrees Celsius or five degrees Celsius or whatever our politicians may think is reasonable. And that infuriates me to, and as I'm sure it infuriates many other parents, you know, we, we've been talking about this for 30 odd years. We've been talking about this since I was in primary school, and we've still not done anything about it as a global community. If we had started reducing our emissions effectively 30 odd years ago, imagine where we could be now. And imagine, you know, the advances that would have been made on relying and storing, relying on and and, uh, storing green energy solutions. You know, we really need to pick up the pace and urgently to to get things moving. It's, It's not just encouraging people to do their little bit, whether it's being able to, you know, rely more on fans than energy, uh, than um, air conditioning, for example, or helping um, marginalised communities adapt better to climate change. We also need to reduce our emissions as well as a global community. And that that's a lot easier and it's, you know, I guess way more practical to do if we have the support and incentives of federal governments. And that's what we currently do not have and it's seriously lacking. So, yeah, it's we're not doing enough and, and we need to do more and we need to do more yesterday basically. And Sarah, you know, on, on top of that, you know, in jurisdictions like the Northern Territory, that's just opened up uh, fracking to the Beetaloo Basin uh, and will we'll create a carbon footprint that is extreme. Uh, the, the messaging from our, our, our Territory Government and the, the enforced circumstances that they financially find themselves because of the Federal Government and its relation to coal and gas is schizophrenic. Uh, they're talking about concern about climate change and at the same time they're fracking. There is zero integrity in that and these leaders need to be held accountable for, for what they're doing to my children's future. I couldn't agree more. I'm hoping to raise a bunch of very strong, very independent women who fight very hard for their future because that's certainly what we're going to need a lot more of um, moving forward. I've got two of them at my house, Sarah. <laughs> oh, good. They can join forces then. They can lead the world. <laughs> I think as I as I listen to some of these conversations, um, it is so confronting. You know, it's really difficult to even begin to imagine what the world that we are creating for our children um, and our grandchildren is, is going to look like. But we have to imagine it. We have to confront it. I, I listen to young people talking about these issues and they take such responsibility for leadership around them, which just indicates to me how our current political leaders are failing so terribly that young people, and often very young people, feel they need to step into that void. This is a conversation that I think we could keep having for, for much longer, but we're going to have to wrap up. And I have a, a, a two-part question for each of you in, in closing. The first is is we, we always ask around people's number one piece of advice. And so from each of you, what is the number one piece of advice that you would have for climate negotiators as we're going into COP? But I, I wanted to say, slip in a, a second part of that question and ask, 
how do we prepare our children for the future? And, and perhaps more importantly, how do we give a sense of hope in the situation that we find ourselves in? Sarah, would you like to, to have a go at those two tricky questions first? Yeah, sure. Uh, so in terms of the message to governments, particularly our own, basically do more and do better. It's frankly embarrassing what they're not doing here and the schizophrenic activities that they've been undertaking, like Simon has pointed out. It's embarrassing. Grow up, put on your big you know, big person pants and just get on with the job and listen to the scientists, listen to the experts in many fields to say that this is a problem. Secondly, moving forward with the future. So my kids are still quite young. I haven't had any conversations with climate change about them yet, but I'm sure they're going to happen very soon. My approach is to arm them with as much knowledge and as much practice, practical skills as I possibly can. So, you know, that was one of the reasons why we moved to Canberra. We can lead a more cleaner lifestyle and more energy efficient lifestyle here. And I want to instill in them those practices as best as I possibly can. So they have the skills to reduce their carbon footprints moving in the future, moving forward in the future, as well as, you know, encourage them to standing up for what they believe in and fighting against really poor policies that do nothing for their own future. Um, and I guess in terms of hope, I haven't given up hope. I am pretty angry sometimes, as you can see, about the lack of action, especially in our own country, but I don't give up hope. I can't do my job and not have hope that the future is going to be better. Sure, we probably won't stop at two degrees Celsius, but we still have every chance of limiting three, four or five degrees Celsius global warming. So there's hope there that the future won't be catastrophic. It won't be as good as what we want, but it's also not going to be you know, something that we need to give up entirely on. Simon, what are your thoughts? Well, in terms of arming negotiators to COP, I would be suggesting that we really need to be putting in a framework of future justice where uh, leaders who uh, who do not oblige in doing future generations the right thing right now uh, face the consequences. In terms of hope, I f- I feel more hopeful and less and, and more hopeless than ever before. But my hope comes from the fact that uh, 15 years ago I stood up in front of a medical audience and I said that every time I spoke in public I would somehow mention climate change. And as a doctor you're often speaking about some pretty boring topics like, like pneumonia and heart attacks. Uh, and I honoured that commitment and when I said it publicly in front of an audience at Royal Down Hospital there were sniggers. No one's sniggering at me now and uh, this isn't a kind of told you so moment but what I find hopeful is that all of a sudden there is unity. Particularly spending time on sabbatical in London a few years ago I saw that collective action can have amazing consequences that are really positive. Scott Morrison and our federal government leave an extraordinary amount to be desired and they will not be forgotten for what they have left us with. However, I believe that we're on the cusp of massive change and I'm really genuinely very hopeful that the next three or four years needs monumental action that I couldn't have imagined a few years ago. Simon and Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your insights with us today. And thank you for sharing that sense of hope, because I think if we are going to to fight this, this 
challenge that is ahead of us. And if our children are to continue to do so, we need that sense of hope. It's so important. And I think we also need our Prime Minister to represent us at COP26. So let us also hope that that happens and we see some some political leadership very soon in this country. Um, but for now, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Sharon. Thanks, Andrea. My pleasure. Thank you. Sharon, that was an extraordinary conversation and I think it's one that we need to continue to go back over. It, it always strikes me in climate conversations, we speak with almost clinical separation when we imagine a future that is a three-degree world. I think beginning to humanise that, to begin to understand what that might look like in, our, in, our, in the places that we love, with the people that we love, in the community that we love, uh, that that will be making a tremendous difference in both how we mitigate, how we address our carbon footprint and how we change our polluting practices, but also in how we might adapt and how we might prepare for our future. So I'm so I was so grateful to have Simon and Sarah with us today. What were your thoughts? That was a fantastic conversation and these are the kinds of conversations that, that we have to have. I think Sarah explained so clearly that when we're talking about a, a one degree increase, we're not talking about the kind of impact that we have when we go from 16 degrees to 17 degrees here in Canberra on a, a cold spring day. You know, it's it's something much more significant than that. And I think people need to understand the me- meanings of what you rightly describe, Anna Greta, as those sometimes quite clinical or technical conversations. But the fact that we are having these conversations and in many parts of the world we are seeing the kinds of leadership that we need, I think, is at least encouraging. Um, so there is there is a pathway forward, there is hope for the future, um, but we need to talk and we need to go beyond talk, we need to act. Yep. The glimmer of hope of the future, yep. Listeners, thank you for joining us today and as always, thank you for joining us each week. We remind you to connect with us. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum at APPS Policy Forum or by email on podcast at policyforum.net. You can also join our Facebook group. If you type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you'll find us there. We'd love you to subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you normally pod with. We do read those reviews. We take them very seriously and we love to hear from you. So please do get in touch. We will be back next week with another episode. But from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.